Hello and welcome back to It's Not Just Black and White, where the topics that we discuss are most likely going to be controversial. So if you're easily offended or even very difficultly offended, this may not be the place for you. As always, my name is Ellie Lake and I'm sitting here with Corey Bearclaw yo, yo. and Jordan Brown. What up? Gentlemen, thank you for coming together once again. It is a beautiful, sunny California day. Um, this week, we'll be discussing, once again, a quite a heavy topic, but the chain of events that have taken place after the February military coup in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. The reason we're speaking about it is because the mainstream media in the U.S. does not seem to be covering it at all, and the average American doesn't even know that Myanmar is a country, let alone of the crisis in the country that has escalated to outright civil war between the military and the people. So just to set up a little bit about Myanmar, where it's located, and a little bit of facts for that, so I'm going to give you a rundown. Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, is a Southeast Asian country next to India and Bangladesh. Um, it is a member of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, also known as ASEAN, which is um, ironic, uh, which is a free trade agreement between nations to, among other things, stimulate economic growth in the region. Members include Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, Brunei Jerusalem, Vietnam, Laos, which is now Lao PD, Myanmar, and Cambodia. So the religious composition of Myanmar is it's about 87.9% Buddhist, 6.2% Christian, 4.3% Islam, and 1.6% other. The population is approximately 55 million people today, uh, which houses approximately 0.70% of the world's population. And life expectancy, it seemed a little bit high to me compared to most uh, Southeast Asian and Asian nations. Um, it's 67.78 years in terms of both sexes. Uh, what's really important, and I think now in a more globalized world, uh, the main industries are quite relevant because although there has been uh, chaotic times in the country, dictatorships in the country, uh, trade has always been prevalent uh, globally, and a lot of nations, uh, even today, have a lot of vested interests within the country. So their main industry is agriculture, which makes up about 60% of their GDP, and about 65% of their labor force is allocated to agriculture. The mining industry is also huge there. We're talking rubies, pearls, jades, and sapphires, some of the rarest in the world. In fact, 90% of the world's rubies, they come from Myanmar. Uh, and oh, I just wow. learned that. And you look at rubies are, you know, one of the most precious gems ever existed. And mm -hmm. that would mean that they, even through all their dictatorships, have controlled the ruby trade. And that says a lot. Um, also, tourism is one of their really big industries. Obviously, not recently. <laughs> and I don't think it's getting any better for tourism in Myanmar yeah. anytime soon. Um, and oil and gas. Now, oil and gas is a pretty good industry there. It's also home to one of the oldest petroleum industries in the world. And what's tragic about it is that it didn't ever get a chance to really flourish into like an OPEC-sized market. It's, there's been several years of isolation from the, of the country by member nations um, 
or surrounding nations. There's been sanctions upon sanctions from international communities, which is what's happening once again. And poor government policies and poor investing. Hmm. So do we know what those uh, old sanctions were? Like why? So what I don't know what exactly the sanctions were, but I can I can kind of guess as to why they they were sanctioned so much. Um, if you remember, there's a famous Burmese protest of a Buddhist monk who lit himself on fire. And what he was protesting was oppression, oppression by a military regime that truly treated the people as subhuman and that's kind of in a lot of ways what's happening today which is why i'm saying that i don't think it's going to get any better for myanmar anytime soon um and a lot of poor policies that they made as well and investing poorly and investing poorly in nations like this in times of chaos is more like a lot of corruption in the government so money that's supposed to be allocated for uh, economic growth of a country is usually just going into politicians pockets and in this case it was military leaders uh, these a lot of these same leaders who have emerged once again so the challenges that Myanmar's economy faces and has faced for several years so in 2011 Myanmar saw its first civilian government emerge after more than half a century of military dictatorship and during those times, and what seems like even when first democracy was founded here or established in Myanmar, the rail and road networks had been neglected for several years. And according to the Asian Development Bank, the country needs at least $60 billion for upgrades up to 2030 to be on a level to uh, be competing effectively. And now after so now they're a member of the Asian uh, free trade agreement and you know that's causing a whole lot of conflicts that we'll also be talking about but it's not seeming so bright for their economy to say the least i mean let's not even talk about the people yet now obviously that is that's that's over now right the the growth the economy going in a good direction mm -hmm. they're definitely not getting any more funding anytime soon and we'll talk about how the military has been trying to um, recoup their funds in other countries and they have now been sanctioned for that and they're not going to get any money anytime soon. Um, so it's looking pretty grim for the country. Myanmar, this is, this is a huge problem trade side, but there's a huge illegal black market that runs in uh, Myanmar, not only animals, but also drugs. What I just found out recently is that Myanmar is the world's second largest source of opium after Afghanistan. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea. That's, That's huge. Crazy. Wow. That's huge. North Korea isn't up on that list? Is North Korea growing opium? Uh, they are a huge drug dispensary country. You know, mm. I don't have the answer to that, but you bring up a good point. But I, the reason why I said second to Afghanistan, because we know now that Afghanistan controls like 80, 90 percent of the world's yeah. opium. So yeah. that that's a hell of a reason. And that's maybe the reason why uh, our military is in there. Let's not get into that today. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk political parties a little bit. So these are some of these parties have existed the whole time, but they were silenced and whatnot, or they were just existing as propped up uh, things to 
show like a false democracy. But now these are the parties that exist today. So we have the Union Solidarity and Development Association, also known as the USDA, uh, the National Unity Party, the National Democratic Force, the Shan Nationalities League for Democracy, and the Shan Nationalities Democratic Party. I don't know the distinctions between those two, but the last one is the National League for Democracy. This has been the political party that has been um, in charge, we can say, uh, for the most part. And the leader of that party, who has now been wrongfully uh, jailed, also tortured, and month after month, week after week, new charges have been brought against her. And we're going to get into some of those charges and see if they're justified. But the leader of that party's name is... Aung San Suu Kyi. Now, that is a very difficult name to say. For So for our purposes today, we'll be referring to her, her as Miss Kyi. And you know what's actually really interesting about Miss Kyi is that she became world famous in the 1990s for campaigning to restore democracy uh, in Myanmar, or uh, I believe it was Burma at the time. She was uh, very well connected knowing that you know she was the daughter of the country's independence hero uh, general Aung San. She spent nearly about 15 years in detention between 1989 and 2010 um, after organizing rallies ca calling for democratic reform and free elections. Um, so she was all around in trying to really fight the military and the ruling power of the time. Mm -hmm. And due to her actions, she was actually awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991 uh, while under house arrest. Uh, it's pretty crazy to think wow. that that's something that she was able to do um, yeah. while being under a house arrest, while, you know, the military is probably trying to fight. So they're trying to silence her. Yeah, they're trying <laughs> to silence her, and she's still speaking out, still able to get the message out and making all these rallies happen, organizing them. And it's surprising that she never was assassinated during these times. You know, you see these dictatorships and, you know, there's people that are trying to oppose the party in power and mm -hmm. they get wiped out. Yeah. And you never hear about them again. But I think me, it's because she had, like, such a big, a polarizing name. I mean, she got the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, like, yeah. you can't whack the person who just got well, the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, it could also be because her father was a general, correct? That so is true. She it, has connections. Yes, yeah, she may be a powerful person. And just because she's speaking against the military, she still technically comes from them. And maybe that's why she was allowed yeah. to get away with it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny is that you're speaking about the... Um, the military and how she was connected to the military and in 2015 she led the national league of democracy to victory in myanmar's first openly contested election in 25 years but she actually got her name tarnished because her reputation with the military and um she spoke openly and uh, defended the military's actions of the deadly campaign against um i'm going to butcher this name the Ro rohingya rohingya perfect. yeah um, it's a Muslim ethnic group, minority group inside the country. Um, so she was defending them, saying that uh, it, it wasn't actually ethnic cleansing. She went in front of the uh, International Court of Justice to defend the military. So there's a lot of people who actually acted against her uh, or that went against her when she uh, committed those acts. Yeah, and that uh, genocide was actually a pretty... The, the big deal at the time um i mean over like 700,000 you know rohingya muslims were displaced or killed and it's uh quite shocking right and this was all done executed by the same military that's 
executing this coup right now, uh, this power grab, you know, to say. Yeah, and even today, this same group is actually the largest displaced Muslim group in the world right now. Really? Even more than the Chinese Uyghurs? Yeah, because that seems to be like a much smaller group where this had been like um, complete, like a whole part of their uh, society, mm. like a real part, like involved part of their society. Now, wow. I don't know the exact numbers, but that's what my sister was telling me. She's in global politics oh, right now. I see. So it's actually like super interesting because the reason that she said that they that this was not a genocide was because the the, the Rohingya uh, Muslims are not considered an ethnic group at all in Myanmar. Like wow. they don't even you know, see you know, them as a thing. Right there, that's a perfect example of why we even come together and record this because yeah, she's for democracy, but yes, she also says this. So it's clearly yeah. not black and white right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. Wow. Well, there, you know, in, on the same token, the Myanmar actually considered them illegal immigrants and deni denied them citizenship. So in a way they could be arguing and she could have been arguing saying, hey, they were breaking the law and they needed to get out of this country and through the process of fighting and them trying to stay, some people died obviously and, and they were quote unquote displaced, but were they actually displaced or they were kicked out because they were never granted citizenship? Yeah, it gets a little foggy there. Yeah. So this coup, like what's it about? Why is it happening? What's their reasoning for it? Who's doing what? Can you tell us a little bit? Well, you know, the military actually had power um, from about 1962, correct? So they had uh, from 1962 to pretty much 2011 or so. They they were the ones running the show. And currently the commander-in-chief, Min Ong uh, Klang, uh, actually ended up wanting to take power um, or take over the government. And he was a man of huge, significant in, uh, political influence, uh, successfully maintained the power of the Tatmadaw, the Myanmar's military. But through the process of the coup, he actually received a lot of uh, condemnation and sanctions for his alleged role in the military attacks of the ethnic minorities. But the general actually sought to justify the takeover because he said the military was on the side of the people and would form a true and disciplined democracy. Obviously, you know, that may not be the truth. Maybe he wanted power. Maybe um, he really is fighting for the people. Who, who really knows? So what is the main reason? And I believe it was because there's like voter fraud, right? Yeah. So actually, there was an election, a dem democratic election, where the National League of Democracy ended up winning, correct? And they ended up winning by a vast margin of, I believe it was 83% or something like that. Wow. Um, so the military thought something was up. Maybe there's voter fraud or something like that, correct? And they tried in front of the country's Supreme Court to argue that the election results were fraudulent, threatened to take action um, and surround the House or the Parliament uh, with soldiers and stuff like that. Uh, they went to the election com uh, commission, but the election commission actually stated there was no fraudulent activity. So. It's, a, it's possible that they just won the majority power because they were the actual voice of the people. Well, it makes sense that, that, that they would be in a landslide you know, victory for this lady because obviously the people weren't happy under this 
military you know dictatorship and when i first heard about this back in like february i thought it was super interesting because here in america we we're going through the same thing one guy's saying there's voter fraud and they're saying oh there's no evidence but but you know so it's this i thought they're just trying to play the same card as uh, the parties here. So the military invoked a, a certain clause in the Constitution, correct, for why they're doing it? Yes. Can you say that for me? Because I, I want to understand that because I'm a bit like I have a real major concern about how the military is going about this. So what exactly are the words they use to yeah, justify Yeah, it's it? interesting because the article that they use is 417 in their constitution and this is what it says verbatim if there arises or if there is a sufficient reason for a state of emergency to arise that may disintegrate the union or disintegrate the national solidarity or that may cause the loss of sovereignty due to acts or attempts to take over the sovereignty of the union by insurgency violence and wrongful forcible means the president may then after coordinating with the national defense and security council uh, create an ordinance and declare a state of emergency in the said ordinance it shall be stated that the area where the state of emergency in operation is the entire nation and that the specified duration is one year from the day that ordinance was created. So that's the exact thing that's concerning to me, Jordan Brown. So they stated a state of emergency, okay, but it was never declared by the president. So they take the power, the military then takes the power. They allege voter fraud then they just go ahead and place a military leader without any elections because they're claiming that they're enforcing democracy. And it seems like that they're functioning as a dictatorship all in all. So if they're really about democracy and some of the events that happened later on how they tried to take over the jade industry, take over these different uh, main industries that we spoke about earlier and just uh, you know enforcing their own rule, this doesn't seem like, even at the surface, it does not seem like a entity that actually wants democratic rule. Well, you know, what do you think? Um, I think that's true. I think that, you know, they can't say that they're trying to install democracy or improve democracy because they're quite literally arresting the family members and any vocal critic to this regime. Uh, and if they can't find that specific uh, individual, they go after their family and stuff. It's these low blows, uh, you know, that they're pulling. That's completely anti-democratic. And uh, according to their constitution, it's the president that's supposed to declare the state of emergency. But as we know, the the military's first action was to arrest the president right without yeah. any proof yeah. of her involvement or wrongdoing anything like this they just said hey like and you're the problem and let's and even still you look at now these protests that you know they began as peaceful protests what they're now calling quote-unquote civil unrest mm -hmm. it started as peaceful protests people just you know saying hey this is wrong or, or whatever and immediately from the peaceful protests the military came in started beating these guys up shooting them and now all of the protests, it's now de-escalated into outright civil war. 
there's like rockets and stuff being used on both sides of the field. Yeah. There used to be a uh, militia that was in the like forest areas of the country and with democratic rule they were on a terrorist list so they were like not a part of you know society and whatnot and then so people started running away right to the forest and this this same militia was like protecting them in a way but now the military has taken them off the list and also they have now become that militia has now become a part of the military so they made them a better deal obviously and and so it seems like overall just it seems like the opposite of if you're trying to enforce democracy everything that's been going around and we're going to talk about the events as well um so let's kind of get into the reasons for the coup right and let's discuss a little bit about what role the military has to play for that or in, in another country let's say what role does a military use to enforce Cory Burkle yeah and uh when you're talking about these guerrilla warfares and uh how they're now we're acquiring all these different weapons. One question, first off, I'd, I'd like to just ask in general, or just a philosophical thought, is like, who's supplying these militias with uh, ammo and and the uh, machine guns and all of the different artillery to fight the government? That's one thing that we need to think about, and just the general gist of things. But when you look at the actual history of the peaceful protests, um, or just the protests in general. Uh, around you know they're they're relatively peaceful for the majority of the time until about February 20th when two unarmed protesters were actually killed um, by the security forces in Mandalay and one of them was only 16 years old and then by you know the 22nd millions of people across the country started taking to the streets and protesting and you know it, it almost was like protests from the George Floyd protests it looks similar to that and you know from the United States um, and in no time, in less than um, a month, there is over, uh, by March 27th, there's about 600 people uh, assaulted and killed, detained. Uh, there's thousands detained and tortured, uh, and there's a lot more monitored and stuff like that. On March 27th was actually the, the deadliest day since the coup, where 100 people actually died. Wow. Um, by July 14th, at least 902 people have been killed in the ensuing crackdowns, um, and tens of thousands of people have been displaced amid fighting between the security forces and armed groups and stuff like that. So, you know, it just expanded civil disobedience because people were just going back and forth and fighting with each other. And now, like, you, you literally have a fight for power with a military who's, like, supplied with artillery yeah. versus the civilians who are just trying to get, get the powerful force started. Um, so you can obviously see how there's going to be a lot of civilians dying really quickly. Mm-hmm. And soon enough, that's going to destroy the economy, going to destroy the society that was built before this coup started taking place. So what is going to happen, and my question to you guys is, will the military have to keep on killing these protesters, or will they have to somehow destroy the uh, guerrilla warfare and destroy all those leaders, or will they come to peace talks somehow? Well, it's my understanding that um, a lot of people have fled the cities just because of the way the government is cracking down on these protesters. I mean, they've like swept through the buildings, just like kicking down every door. So a lot of people have fled. And the remaining people, um, honestly, from my research here, uh, 
living in an ultra police state right now right so uh they're saying that the the police and military are stopping people on the street they're like looking through their phones uh trying to see pictures or messages um as to what they're doing where they've been who they're communicating with um they're just checking for any type of evidence that they're against this military regime pretty much um, and it's like making you know, people be scared, right? So they're taking all these back streets and alleys and things like this just to avoid uh, these types of encounters, right? And we know when you play hardball with your civilians, they're ultimately going to keep pushing back. They're going to resent you. And as we said earlier uh, in this podcast, uh, this is not the first time that the people of Myanmar have gone through this, right? And they claimed that there's like voter fraud, but it's hard to believe that the people wanted to go back to this, what they're going through right now. Yeah, definitely not. And if you look at even in, in a democratic state, if there's voter fraud, yes, it's easier to just brush it under the rug and try to like hide and whatnot. But the solution is not a military takeover. You know, if it's democracy, there's there's a number of mechanisms in play that you can appeal to the voter fraud. It's There's no need for the military to come over because that's how democratic systems are set up. If something is not what it seems, then we go find out what it seems and we have another vote. There hasn't been a single vote, right? Mm-hmm. Um, exactly, and when, you know, if we try and relate this to uh, the U.S. situation where there was protests and people believed and still believe today that there's a massive amount of voter fraud in the US and could you guys imagine if the military came in and was like yeah we we believe there's voter fraud and we want and we're going to take we're going to arrest Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and you know we're going to we're going to restart this entire process in here but, <laughs> yeah. but now you guys and you we're guys in charge while here. this is going down yeah <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And yeah. like you, you obviously we we saw the protest with George Floyd. But you can see how quickly civilians can turn on the government, and you know can cause destruction, but also get their message out. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, I wonder how what what would that look like in America? See, that would happen? I, I think in the U.S. that there's a huge variable, which is the mainstream media, which is media in general. Because let's say that the people are upset with the government or how things are going. What would they do? They would charge the capital. And what happened to those people charging the capital who they themselves believed they were doing the right thing in accordance with their constitutional rights to do so? What happened then? We made them look crazy. I'm not saying they're not or they are. That's irrelevant. But the media immediately came in, said they're crazy. They don't know what they're talking about. And obviously the guy wearing the Viking horns didn't help anybody. Um, but that's how you brush it under the rug, by the media coming in and say, these, are, these guys are baseless. There's no such thing. They're crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, when you call somebody crazy, you immediately disqualify them for making a good enough point for you. And before we move forward, I wanted to touch on also, you said who's supplying them, correct? So the militia, right, the military made a deal with them. So the military, whatever weapons they have, they are sharing with them. And that's why they have like crazy rockets and whatnot, right? But uh, I think Jordan Brown was telling me we, he was watching a conference, the like um, a Russian ambassador, or was it? Oh yes, the head of Russia's state arms exporter had yeah. said uh, that Moscow. This is a quote: uh, that Moscow was working very closely with 
the ruling like junta that's the yes. coup so the military yeah. uh to supply it with a military uh hardware and aircraft so and i believe that russia is the only you know, country who's come out publicly saying that they're supporting this uh new regime so before the coup australia like australian arms had a huge contract with myanmar but i think during the middle of the coup um and after a number of sanctions to their leaders uh, australia pulled that deal so they didn't want to be associated with this kind of you know uh, i guess negative pr and russia just likes money you know russia's apparently just trying to uh, seize the opportunity and you know make i make a because if this military wins you can forget about democracy in myanmar and that's an ideal situation for russia yeah. because they don't mind right and they're also they they do it on a grand scale they yeah like they do the same type of rule yeah whatever. you you take over by force and you make your friends rich is what it's russia's model yeah right? and yeah. you will go out and silence anybody who opposes yeah it's divide and conquer and then you know yeah. you obviously want to make sure you you silence the other side that you're not trying to support right but yeah. also the the russia's strategy might be to take power away from china because when you look at it, china is actually one of myanmar's largest investors so um and china also claims vast swaths of the disputed south china sea or sea that is connected between a nine dash line which intersects the economic zones of Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, Indonesia, the Philippines, um, which are all ASEAN um, members. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So if they, if Russia can take control of that and take the power away from China, that's um, a vast economic um, region, re region, yes. but also improvement for Russia and downfall to China mm -hmm. if they're able to control that. Yeah. yeah. So I think we don't. So, yes, Russia is supporting and China has publicly said that they're not supporting. They had nothing to do with this. But also militarily, this is also out of China's playbook, right? They, they also do the same thing. So if they're saying publicly that they don't support it, you know, we can't just take their word for it. We have to see what their vested interests are. Yeah. And like you said, they're the largest investor in the country. But what's very interesting about what Corey said is because I remember reading an article. This was uh, like a few months back. I don't have it here in my notes, but the military was, because they're obviously you know, lacking evidence right now. They haven't put out any type of evidence uh, to the world or to the public as to where this voter fraud came from or whatever. Um, we'll get to that a little bit like later. I have some pieces on it, but they had stated that they believe that the leaders of this democratic party uh, were trying to conspire with China and they were trying and they were doing this to get farther away from China. That was one of their excuses for this this coup. If that's true, like I'm, I mean, I don't know. But like I said, they've lacked a lot of forthcomings with their findings so this could just be a claim of validation uh, but it would make sense as to what like Corey said because they might be getting away from china and maybe going more towards russia um you know who knows at this point yeah i mean either way that's that's more of like an international scene if you look at domestically what it clearly is is a power grab and mm -hmm. even still I, and again, I keep going back to this. If you are instituting or enforcing democracy, then what's happening now with outright civil war would not occur. Things would eventually get better. 
So I just, and I'm saying this over over again, I just don't get how you enforce democracy by in, by taking over militarily. Yeah. Because it yeah. seems like it seems like an oxymoron. I feel like they don't know any other way as to how they can enforce democracy, right? I mean, or enforce like whatever they want. I mean, because as we said, they've had a deep, rich history of this type of rule and the best way they know how to take control of anything is just to just go out there and take control. Out, exactly go out there and <laughs> smash everybody and uh that's just like how they do it and it's it's interesting that uh the whole world has like ridiculed them you know publicly but like, moscow is making this military regime legitimate in, in many ways so you know, question to ask is: Was is the military in the right if they're trying to seize power and they truly believe that there is voter fraud, or do we believe that you know the NLD and um, the new party that came into be an election was in the right and there was and there was no voter fraud? What well, do you guys think? It's it's hard to tell because the NLD and all these other people who were arrested haven't been able to say anything they haven't been able to give their side of the story at all right and the military they claim that there's been eight million cases of fraud um how they determine that is they have a national like voter registration system mm -hmm. of some kind and they basically took the list and they like noticed that there was some a repeat voters per se so one number corresponds to one person and they saw that multiple times or they saw a number and it was with a different name um, but like I said they took all of this evidence and they it's they've just kept it they haven't released it to anybody independent but some independent observers have actually came out and agreed and said they have found uh, some evidence of fraud or that it could have occurred but uh there's been no evidence to uh, verify it and there's actually a u.s based uh, center it's called the like, carter center uh who had like, 40 observers out on these polling stations and uh they said that on election day there was you know i quote no major irregularities uh were reported but as I said, the military claims that these registration numbers were repeated or have same or different names. But again, this data cannot be verified because they removed it from anybody to see. And, and you know, for some reason, part of this feels uh, from the military side a bit personal to me because they've captured uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and they've kept Miss Kyi, you know, locked up, tortured her, whatever it is. And every month or so, every few weeks or so, they're coming out with new charges against her. Uh, there was just recently, uh, I think this month or the last month, she had her first trial where she was seen in public. But they're going after this person as if there isn't a whole Democratic Party behind her, which also they're not speaking or they're not being allowed to speak. So this seems this seems like an attack on democracy yeah. versus a enforcing of it exactly and i mean everybody else who's a part of that party they're uh, either arrested or in hiding right I yeah mean, as i said so yeah. they so know. as of right now what do you guys think would be the best solution going forward like from like today going forward do you think that the military should go out and like be like hey we this is our evidence and show it to everybody in the public 
and so at least they like people can see what they're seeing and then maybe take a less aggressive approach towards the protesters and chaos and stuff like that because yeah, when you think about fighting like you have both sides are going to continue to fight until like it's the last man standing but if mm -hmm. one side in a way swallows a pride and stops shooting stops punching then the people are going to go back to continuing to protest if they burn if they start burning down cities and like destroying every, like all of the land and property then it's like okay maybe we need to find a way to control them again but if they're protesting the streets walking down the street that's not going to be a danger to them and they can let them do that while releasing public information of what they <coughs> what they have found right mm -hmm. so so tragically i i and i don't say this lightly because this is what it seems like is Myanmar now is the modern day Iraq okay so there's a military now in power they're doing whatever the hell that they want and I'm not saying this is any real solution but from what we've learned throughout history and how we have functioned as a you know global society is we've basically when a military leader goes mad or you know military is getting out of hand another country comes in and marches troops and brings order and most likely it's going to be whoever has the largest military right now India's got a large military, you know, India's never really been um, uh, necessarily involved with like foreign affairs in the sense that maybe Bangladesh, maybe Pakistan, right? But in terms of warring, because they're historical pacifists, but not domestically, mm -hmm. but internationally, that's that's how they present themselves. But India has a giant army that they could just march in there and, and be like, yo, get it together. Or a different army. For, I think specifically, um, my my family friends were visiting from Pakistan and we were talking about and they were telling us they're you know our politics have nothing to do with them even but they were telling us that and they were rightfully so that you know Republicans notoriously have not shied away from domestic policy and Democrats come in and they give us the next war or whatever foreign policy that we need to focus on so while we have a Democratic leader unfortunately like it is gonna seem like he might want to take us to to war so just to repeat myself I, I don't think this is any sort of solution but domestically it doesn't seem like democracy is going to come out by itself economic growth is going to come out by itself I'm really concerned that they won't be able to join the international community that they were you know once a part of or became a part of welcomed into even and you know they basically l let go of their shit what I think is unfortunate is that our government or another world power is going to march troops in there in efforts to bring order and then there'll be one more war that we gotta you know watch on the news or whatever yeah well i think uh it's obvious that probably going to be like russia who's going to march in troops or at least send their special forces in if they're not already there right uh like i said they're the only you know country that's been on their side per se mm -hmm. but um and back to what mr bearclaw said i believe that that the military is in a little too deep at this point right i mean i think their best action now would be to come out with the evidence let the un or these organizations go in and review this evidence so that way they can say all right this is legit maybe there was something but they've lost all the trust of their like citizens right so if they stopped like shooting that means people would eventually start to come back to the cities so as we know they've fled to the jungles and whatnot um, so people would have to come back obviously going to be hostile 
right? And as you said, if they come back and they're hostile, then that gives the military an excuse to keep going with the hard ball or whatever. And this escalation, I think it's going to be going on for a long time for the foreseeable future here. And remember that the the military is not just the military there's also regular people that are in full support of this right because they want the order or maybe they benefit from one way or another and it's not just um wealthy people for instance either it's it's all up and down the scale mm-hmm. so the military also has a significant amount of supporters so now the country will always be split into this two you know you support the yeah. military or you fear it or you don't trust it. yeah well one thing also that's really interesting when you think about it is that it's the military is made up of people in the actual society so Hmm. let's say this coup and things you know start to settle and things start to let's say go back to normal you already have two different groups and two different societies because you have the people who are in the military enforcing this military rule and then you have this other side who was fighting against the military so you're going to have both sides of the coin now like be completely divided in beliefs of like hey you were completely in the wrong and I don't want to be associated with you and now you have in a way you could have two different classes but you also have two different parties just based off that so how to integrate the military back into civilian life is going to be another thought that's going to be way too difficult to comprehend as of right now yeah it seems like uh, they're going to be back in power for the next like 50 years probably the same way they were in this last century and that's that's a a horrible thing to happen because we know from the previous military regime that your roads are going to go to shit your uh, industries are not going to do so well as they could have money is going to go into people's pockets and it's going to be like a small group of people and you know the rest of the people are you know they're in ruin more or less Mm -hmm. that's it's a huge tragedy i think and to kind of go back to what what this would actually look like in the u.s you know i know we touched about it we saw these similar events happening with the george floyd events and the protests and we also talked about how the u.s took a completely different approach right instead of going out and shooting these protesters even though they did but with rubber bullets they did you know do the beating and they're arresting they they Mm -hmm. definitely had their flaws don't get me wrong this was the police though this was not the military yes this was the police yeah Uh, yeah, this is the police but it's a militarized police they did have national guard come out to some cities and stuff like that which um where it was required but the these military were not shooting at these protesters and it wasn't literally like a, a fight to the death to uh to protect their land hmm. um and kind of the approach that i was i touched on before was how the u.s did take the approach of putting a putting their foot in their mouth and swallowing their pride in in a way they they promoted the protesters saying that hey these guys are right and in the end the protesters felt like they won and so they stopped protesting as much stopped destroying the cities and everyone kind of went back to what they were doing. They lay punishment on uh, the police that killed George Floyd and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. the protesters felt like they won. And, you know, my question to you guys, what do you guys think that this would look like in the, in the U.S. outside of the George Floyd? See, I mean, uh, what you just described is exactly what a... And you can, we can argue is America democracy or not, but this is what, in a democracy, what it looks like. If... If, let's say, the police or the military, they're getting out of hand, there's reprimands for them as well. There are systems, procedures, mechanisms put in place to hold people accountable. 
So in these, it may seem like in the amount of time that Myanmar was this democratic state, the military was just sitting back and giving them kind of this, um, letting them have their heyday. And then they were always planning to come out and, and take it. Because I keep saying again, it, this is not what democracy looks like. Yeah. So you know, so the military, uh, they have no place in handling these, uh, these like protests, right? This is part of American history. We've had protests throughout the past hundred years here, right? Military has never been involved. So remember, like, so the National Guard, it's a branch of the military, but the Joint Chiefs of Staff are not in charge of like rolling them out this is a state thing so the governor would roll them out right the military stays out of you know domestic affairs and remember there was no the evidence of this like voter fraud and things like this here it it never really like came out right there they've done tons of you know you know I, i guess like digging into this and there has been nothing there's been inconclusive like findings so uh it's hard for you know someone to say oh like this happened and uh we need to declare like martial law and get this thing back under control and even still you know it's the the governor requests for national guard or military and then it goes up the chain up the chain up the chain and then gets approved so Mm -hmm. what's also clearly missing in myanmar is yeah you had miss key like you know, the, as the de facto leader of the place, but it was just her. Like, you would have her decisions and then her party. There wasn't this bureaucracy, red tape. There was no levels mm-hmm. of bureaucracy that, um, you know, uh, secured the position of what a president should be in a democratic state, mm-hmm. which is why, clearly, it's so easy that the military just come took one person out and quiet the party, and now they have all the control. Yeah, and I mean, when you have a military state for your entire history of the country or um, what they declare that that the country is Mm -hmm. and then trying to transition into a government for the people from the military state that's not going to be some easy transition it's not going to be smooth and it's definitely not going to take the 10 what what was it 10 to 20 years that it's been going on for right now they're probably going to go back and forth multiple times Mm -hmm. um yeah, like we said, it took us 300 years and we still barely figured it out. Yeah, and you know, like you said, Ali, I feel like this whole democratic thing has been going on, as we said, for like a decade now. And uh believe like the military was probably planning on like taking over because they're like, yo, this has been going on for too long. And uh, we uh, want to get back to calling the shots. And it didn't matter what how, what the results were, they were always going to do this and um, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. Yeah, I agree. There it is. Uh, I think that's a great discussion. We talked about a number of things. Um, we talked about some facts and some industries that are really strong in Myanmar, or were strong, or that are increasingly relevant in the international community. We talked about their politics, how they're set up, who's in charge or who was in charge, uh, and the reasons for the coup, and what role the military has to play in you know enforcing democracy whether they're needed or not uh, we talked about some of the events as well uh, we'd recommend that you guys go look this up and see all of the events that have occurred since the february beginning of the coup um, it's there's a lot of escalation we're really concerned now about the country not enough people are talking about it so if you hear this episode um, firstly thank you but secondly share talk to your people share it with people so 
you know, we can spread the word because today, what from what we've heard and from where we stand, we stand with the people of Myanmar, and we think you should too. Um, and you know, that's all. As always, thanks for tuning in. My name is Ali Laik, and I'm sitting here with Jordan Brown and Corey Bearclaw. Thank you very much. Good night.